Hi, everybody. I'm Ralph ben Mergy. Welcome to Not That Kind of Rabbi, a show where we explore all of the issues of the day and the people who motivate those issues through a spiritual lens. Uh, I know there, there's that word, spiritual. Now, that doesn't mean uh, I need you all to get into a lotus position and to breathe deeply through your nostril and then out the other nostril. Uh, what I'm saying is there are more things in this world than are obvious to us, that are literal for us. There are elements of this world that have wonder and awe in them, and that sometimes we might have to find a way to bend our knee towards that to get a bigger picture of unity. There's a Michael Pollan wrote a really good book lately called uh, Change Your Mind. Paul is best known for Omnivore's Dilemma and books like that. But in this one, he he experiments with um, uh, psychedelic drugs, uh, LSD and uh, magic mushrooms and psilocybin mushrooms. And he'd never done them. He's 60 years old at this point when he writes the book, and he's never done any of these kinds of drugs earlier in his life. And one of the things he really noticed about the experience, and they're now using it in palliative care and certain um, depressions and certain maladies, as it were. And it was that in the experience of the drug itself, the ego is moved out of the way. And in that movement out of the way, unity becomes obvious, that we are part of everything and everything is a part of us, that we are literally stardust. The minerals, the the, the world around us, you know, when you think of it in, in terms of perhaps a native uh, Indian culture in North America or anywhere in the world, indigenous cultures, there is this belief that everything has a life force in it and is sacred. If we look at those ideas and then we look at how we see resources, for instance, and the extractive resource economy, extractive capitalism, how these systems work, we commodify so a gross uh, domestic product, if you cut down a tree, it has value and worth. If you leave it standing in a forest, it is useless for the GDP. It is not being maximized by human beings for profit gain and the common good in some cases, and in most cases at this point in time, not so much the common good. But all those things to say that there is another issue at hand, and that is the climate crisis itself. If we treat it as purely a physical act, a physical breakdown of the planet, I guess we can run around the edges of it for a very long time and say, well, tweak this and tweak that. Uh, but if we treat it as a war on our nature, then we have a different conversation going. If you see the Australian fires and understand that a billion beings, a billion animals, a billion creatures of this world are gone now or in the next few years because their food source is gone. And measure that against, you know, 87 people who, God love them, uh, also are gone. Where are we in this? Where is nature in this and for some people nature is the word they use and for other people where is god in this is another question that they have so uh, i have spent a fair amount of uh, years the last 10 or 12 working with people in climate communications working for political parties on environmental issues and working with organizations as well and really struggling with trying to understand why don't we get it why are we still 
so susceptible to any seed of doubt in that situation? Well, I have uh, found someone who has engaged the, the battle, as it were, to be able to really take on all those people who want to s- sow those seeds of doubt about climate change. Uh, he didn't have to, but he wanted to. His company is called Sixth Element Sustainable Management, and uh, he has over 30,000 followers on Twitter, I believe, and I'm one of them, so I decided I'd ask him if he'd come and do this with us, and he's uh, in Ottawa, and I'm in Toronto, so we figured we'd meet through technology. Gerald Cutney is his name, and he joins me now. Hello, sir. Hey, Ralph. How are you doing? Good. Sorry for the long blah, blah. Didn't mean to make you wait, but had to get that No, out. I enjoyed it. What do you think of what I'm saying about uh, climate communications and climate crisis? You can't disagree with what you're saying. And you mentioned about, you know, why are, why are we arguing over this? And, and that's the root cause. Uh, as we discussed beforehand, I, I'm a scientist. So I have a tendency to be a little bit more analytical, a little bit more practical. When I've looked into the climate crisis why are we in a climate crisis? Why do we have these stupid arguments over science from non-scientists? To me, it's pretty simple. It has to do with the financing of one of the greatest propaganda campaigns in the history of the world that's been financed by the fossil fuel industry. And that propaganda has corrupted so many minds, it actually undermines our democracy. We're used to seeing it, though, and often people just go, eh, whatever, they're just over here. But you actually believe that, do you believe they're winning? No, they're not winning, but they have so far. If you look at the science on climate change, when was it really good enough that we should have started doing something? I can tell you it was perfectly clear by the end of the 1970s. And so because of this propaganda campaign that's put enough doubt in the minds of of voters and in some politicians, we've delayed about half a century too long. And so that's converted climate change from climate change into the climate crisis that we have to try to deal with today. What's the uh, hashtag you use? Uh, I use climate crisis itself a lot, but the one I've developed and I use within a community that we work together on is called Climate Brawl. Why, why did you call it that? That's an interesting story. It's not that I'm trying to cause a fight with anybody. Uh, what brought me to do it, I was in an argument with a very high-profile climate denier. And I got into an argument with them one, one weekend And then all his followers joined in. And it was exhausting. Literally, it was exhausting. We had like over 100,000 impressions over the weekend. And it it was sort of silly in a way. You could say, well, why didn't you just stop with the argument? When you're in this, it's hard to stop. Well, afterwards, I thought, well, how come I don't have people joining me and helping defend the science against these climate deniers. So the whole purpose of Climate Brawl was to attract people from the Twitterverse 
to join in and fight the propaganda that's coming out from climate deniers. That's, uh, that's, I would assume, not something you decided lightly. Well, I'll face it. I'm an old guy. You know, I'm not <laughs> into Twitter. You know, the only reason I use it because my son got me into it, like <laughs> most of us old guys are, right? Right. And so I had no idea much about hashtags. I just threw it out there, and most of them just disappeared. And for some reason, I was shocked at this. People were looking for this. People wanted to engage, but they almost wanted to be asked to do it. And I was stunned by the communities developed. There's hundreds, if not thousands, that join in all the time under Climate Brawl to help each other out, but also to go out and, again, attack the propaganda of the climate deniers. I find it so interesting that, okay, 1970s, we're perfectly clear that there is a climate crisis and it's going to happen. Uh, I read books by people like George Marshall, who wrote a book called Don't Even Think About It, about the climate crisis and the inability uh, that we have to be effective in convincing people that they have to take action. I keep thinking that it's really not something that you can reason with people about. You can tell them all, like I I would often say, if I was doing a workshop for climate or environmentalists, I would say, you know, I could sit here in front of you and say, the tolerable amount of pollutant in the atmosphere or in the air that we're breathing is 350 parts per million. After 350 parts per million, we find ourselves in a heating situation. We're now at 412... they just glaze over because they walk outside and even on a, a cold, sunny day and go, nice day. It's very nice out here. So there's no immediacy to the conversation. If I say instead to them, you know, one in four kids in Ontario has asthma. Used to be that you could name the one kid in your school who has asthma. Now it's every fourth child walking into that classroom and one of those children is mine. Now, when I say it like that, everyone in the room is nodding and listening because I'm now in a moral argument. Can science do this without a moral component? I would argue it's not necessarily the role of science to do that. There's other people that can do that as well. You brought up earlier on about the disaster in Australia that's happening and the massive wipeout of of animals and you hear stories of the firefighters hearing the koala bears screaming because they're burning to death in those fires. The problem we have is that climate change is, is something we can't see. And so it's great when something happens like uh, Greta Thunberg, challenges people to start thinking about climate change and we get all revved up about it or that there's a COP meeting coming up like in Paris where people get really excited about that and and want to do something the problem with all these events is that afterwards things start going back to normal because we look out the window I'm looking outside my window here in Ottawa today it's a beautiful sunny day People can't relate to it on an ongoing basis. Where I get so frustrated is that the experts in the world are saying that this is a serious threat. It's no different than you visiting your doctor. 
and you feel fine, and he tells you you have some serious illness, you have cancer or wherever the case may be, you don't sit there and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. I saw a blog on the Internet that says I don't. We have to learn to accept what the experts are telling us in, in something that has such consequences, such as climate change, that for the most part is invisible to the average person. But you're, you're, it's not that that they don't want to hear. They do want to do something if they think there's something wrong. What they don't want to hear is your way of life is over. You can't sustain this way of life. You can't live like this anymore. You can't consume without thinking. You can't drive without choking. These things are not on. Where's my job? What am I going to do? You're, t- you're trying to disrupt my life and take it away from me. Look at what's happening in places like Alberta where oil and gas is, is, is king. You're, you, you have people saying, we want to leave Canada because they really think that you're out for them. You're hunting for them. So that science isn't going to help with that conversation, is it? No, it's not. And uh, I, I don't think it, it should, actually. They will try. There are scientists that are very active, for example, on, on uh, public discourse and on Twitter, for example, uh, on that sort of thing. But the one thing you have to look at in this is that, well, first of all, as you described, it is quite complicated. And I'm certainly not one of those guys who are saying, okay, it's going to end now. Okay, so you got 30 days and you're going to have to go get yourself an electric car and you're going to have to stop with all the oil and gas and fossil fuels and the rest of it. This still has to be done in some sort of organized way. But when you talk about something like Alberta, why is Alberta so riled up? I can tell you a lot of it has to do with propaganda. They just had a, the conservatives just had a conference out there where they had yeah. uh, Conrad Black and, and Brett Wilson and I think, I don't know if Rex Murphy was there. Yep. The who's who of climate denial of Canada. Not one person has any scientific background whatsoever on this. Why did they have this? This was a propaganda conference. So whip up the crowd. Now, in fairness, because oil and gas is important to the province in, in Alberta, I lived in Calgary for a few years. It's a beautiful city. The people are fantastic. I'm a firm believer that if we have to decide that there's going to be stranded assets, as they call it in Alberta, and we agree that it's going to happen by a certain date, the workers in the oil and gas industry aren't supposed to pay for this. They're not supposed to be punished because they're working in the oil and gas industry. It's up to all Canadians to make sure that they're taken care of. And that's the discussion we should be having. It's not that they're going to lose, people are going to lose their job. What are we going to do to make sure that they're whole out of this, no matter how long it takes? So you say, when you say you're a scientist, I also assume you're preemptively saying, don't ask me about spirituality. Am I right? I, of my background, I will default to science. And so you can, you can ask anything you want, but I am <laughs> not leading towards that direction too much. Do, do you see yourself as having a spiritual life? A very private one, but I don't see it with climate change. But that said, 
Okay, that said, the issue of climate change, which, why do I get so wild over that? I'm actually not a climate scientist. No, you're a chemist. No, why am I why am I so wild about this? It's because I look at this that all of humanity is is under attack. All of it. We're under attack, our kids are under attack, and our children's children are under attack. And if we don't do anything, it's not that suddenly we go to this new level that's different than it was before, and so we just have to adapt to it. We're going to be adapting forever. Because that's the way climate change works. So I certainly see this as not a scientific issue. I see this as a social and humanitarian issue that we need to respond to. So we've built a society on a set of assumptions. Many of them have kind of evolved or devolved to material assumptions about what is a good life. How do we reinvent so that we can culturally move away from where we are now and make the changes that you're talking about. What do we need to do? How do we need to see this planet around us if we're going to do something about this? I realize this is a little bit naive, but the thing that's driven me up the wall that when you look at politics, and just look at Canadian politics, forget about the U.S. or Australia or countries like that for the moment. Politicians are famous for stretching the truth. But what I've seen in the last certainly half a decade or a decade, integrity in politics is almost gone. We've seen it in Ontario. We've seen it in Alberta. We've seen it on the federal level. What's going on here? What has changed? It used to be a time where public media used to keep politicians in line. Somebody stood up and gave some bullshit stat about something, excuse the expression, and the press would be all over them. Now the press is like everyone else. They're just quickly on Twitter putting out the latest uh, quote from whether it's Jason Kenney or Doug Ford or whoever it may be. And so there's they aren't being held. And so, you know, one thing I was terribly frustrated, it was the last election. In Ontario, where Doug Ford was making all this, these statements about job-killing, uh, carbon taxes and stuff, those were lies. They were blatant lies, and, the, and Doug even knew it. But yet, no one held him to account for that. And I've written op-eds about this that have appeared, you know, and people are interested in it. But really, this has got to start where our politicians have integrity to a certain degree. And until that happens, I don't know how, what else we can do. Well, I would argue uh, in context that politics has not devolved from a pure state to a corrupt state. It's um, pendulum swinging and it's constant. So the Union Nationale in Quebec was a profoundly corrupt uh, government that uh, had many... Uh, shall we say, demerit points for the way they behaved. Um, there are governments all the time, all over the place, that are up to no good. Uh, and there are governments that try to do good things, but don't try to do enough of them sometimes as well. I mean, I'm finding it interesting that you said that you have a spir spiritually, because this is a spiritual podcast, a spiritual private life, but you don't see how that connects to your work in climate change. 
I'm, I, don't, I don't understand how that could be if a spiritual life is about ethics and values and action. Are you not employing ethics, values, and action in your work right now in standing up to climate deniers? Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly by that description, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is The important aspect of this is let's not exaggerate it, let's not demean it, let's, let's just state what it is. Put the so-called facts on the table. And there's no, there's no such things as different facts. There's only a set of facts. And we discuss those facts, and once we agree what the facts that we're going to discuss, then it's important that we talk about on a broader scale of what we should do and how it should be done. But people go to the other extreme. What, what, when you're talking about going back, for example, of Alberta, if, if somebody told me that I was going to lose my job that I've had for 30 years because someone was going to ban the use of oil or whatever the case may be, I'd be pretty upset with that too. But that's where we, the game is starting. People jump to that, and they're, they're encouraged to jump to that extreme. We step back, and we say, look, we have a problem. How do we do it? How do we minimize any damage to anybody? And that has a lot less to do with science. It has a lot to do with moral and ethics, ethical treatment of people. And there is no one in the climate change advocates that are ever suggesting that we don't follow a, a response like that. Is the climate denial community simply about money and corporate wealth and greed, or are there, is it a more nuanced collection of deniers? When I've looked, I, I've studied this quite a bit, and when you, when you look at this, uh, a favorite thing to say is that, well, the climate denier are all conservative or right-wing. There's actually some truth to that. There's certainly more that are in the conservatives and right-wing, and I don't mean politically, I mean by their uh, politics generally. But why is that? Well, one of the things that you'll find is that this group is very susceptible to the propaganda I was talking about earlier. Why? Uh, that's a good question. That I'm not so sure about, but it seems being ingrained to them. It's a little bit easier to talk about the U.S., and that's because the U.S., by the nature of the Constitution, it's small government. And so, especially on the right, they believe in small government. In other words, free market, government shouldn't be regulating what we're doing. What the propaganda campaign does is taking anything, and that's all they talk about. This is against free market. This is against liberty. This is, this is government controlling your lives. These are, are job-killing taxes. And so the, when that happens, the propaganda machine is feeding exactly what the ideology of the right already feels. And so then they get more riled out, and then it just starts like a, like a snowball going down a hill and turns into an avalanche. You know, I did. Uh, I was watching 
at the last federal election in the United States, there was a um, a, a black host, uh, I think it was on CNN, and he had a guest on with him. And uh, the guest was um, basically a, a white nationalist trying to appear reasonable. You know, look, we don't have anything against anybody. We just think everybody should st- stick to their own kind. Um, and if they want to go back to where they're from, that's, you know, that, that would make a lot of sense for them because they're not actually from here as opposed to the white nationalist who thinks he is. So he's doing all this, and the black host says, looks at him, and he finally goes, I think I figured this out. You know what's pissing, pissing you off? And the man looked at him, I don't, I don't know. What, what are you saying? Because what's pissing you off is you used to have an 80-yard head start, and now you've only got a 30-yard head start, and you're not happy about it. And I sometimes think that really if you look at the whole climate conversation as you can't live like this anymore, you don't get all this stuff you had, which is part of what we have to really come to terms with. Does a highly material consumptive economy that is being propagated as the the good life fantasy all over the world, does that actually, is it sustainable? Um, Even if you make it circular, even if you make it so that, you know, all of these wonderful ideas about what to do, if we maintain that same kind of hyper neoliberal capitalist frame, it's to the advantage of the white man in the world. And for the rest of the world, it is not to their advantage. So that in Virginia, uh, as we tape this today, in Virginia, you see people who are gathering with their guns to say, you're taking away my rights. Now, yes, it's about this idea of small government and freedom, but it's also about which racial group gets to have control over the conversation. I think there's something to that. Am I wrong about that? No, I, I, I don't disagree with anything you said. And just to expand something a, a little bit, capitalism isn't the evil thing in the world, but it has to have rules. And that's where I personally, I believe we have a big advantage in Canada over the U.S. Because the U.S. has a lot of untethered industry out there. And the problem you run into is that in a completely free, capitalistic, unregulated, you're looking for infinite growth. How can you have infinite growth when you have finite resources? It's, it's not possible. The question is not if it's, if it's going to be a disaster. The question is going to be when will it be a disaster? And really, climate change is one of the things that's fallen out of it. I keep thinking that the there's a, a place for the religious institutions in this conversation that it's not as robust as it could be, that the eco-spirituality movement is not as robust as it could be. I do know that uh, there are encyclicals from the, the Catholic Church. I have uh, a friend who's uh, on the show, Michael Corrin, who uh, is now an Anglican minister, and uh, I asked him, is, is Jesus a socialist or, or, or a capitalist? And he said, Jesus is a socialist, that the common good supersedes the individual's right to extract what, what they may in resources, in, in human capital, in, in all these different endeavors. Um, so that's part of that for me makes sense, that as long as we're in a situation of extractive capitalism, I mean, for instance... Why isn't there a national resource index? 
Why don't I know how much cadmium is left in the ground, how much nickel is left in the ground, how much oil is left, how long it's supposed to last, who's taking it at what cost to us, how much do we subsidize each of these extractive pieces? And then at the same time, how much are, are employers extracting from employees, you know, in terms of their human capital and how quickly we can burn through it with very little consequence except from retraining costs. So to me, there's a heartlessness to what's going on. And I don't know how we get it back through science. I, I had a friend of mine used to be, um, actually, he was a president of a university out West for a while. And we have a Sabbath dinner on a Friday night. And uh, he was sort of banging on me about, you know, being, he was he's an atheist. He's Jewish by birth, but he's an atheist. And he's kind of banging away at, at, at you know, this God is a fairy tale thing. And, uh, and religion doesn't really serve scientific purpose very well. And I said, well, you know, this religion can give you one thing right now that science can't give you. And he said, what's that? And I said, this dinner, not physically this dinner, the people coming together to celebrate together and do blessings together and to have a dinner, a Sabbath dinner. Science doesn't have that answer. And I sometimes think, I, I, I more than sometimes think, we're barking up the wrong tree because this is an emotional thing. When you talk about politics, politics in communications terms, numbers are useless. I can cherry pick every number. I can tell you, you know, 43% of people uh, believe in tinfoil. And you'll go, did you know that 43% of people believe in tinfoil? Just because I said it. But emotions are what deal, what, what people really, that's the currency of politics. Hope or fear. That's how you run a campaign. So if that's where we're at, it, these might be the weapons of war as opposed to how many parts per million. When we're talking about the importance of religion and inspiration versus science and hard data, in the end, where what must be taken as the next step, I think we, we're agreeing with each other exactly. True. We may be describing it different labels and stuff like that. As I said, the science has been solid for like three or four decades. It's just been piling up since all that time. In a couple of years, let's forget 2022, the IPCC is going to come up with another uh, three or four reports, as always does, and the world get all excited. It's not going to say anything different. But why? Why? Is it really that the merchants of doubt are that good? Or is there yeah. something wrong with us fundamentally that we can't get off our ass and do something about this? No, we're basically good. Everyone is basically good. I firmly believe that. But we're manipulated so easily. Look what happens when Greta Thunberg came to Canada. Okay, we're a puny little country, 36 million people or wherever we are. Here is this young teenager she stops in a few places in Canada. She promotes the climate strike marches that were held across this country. My wife and I participated in the one in Ottawa. I'd never been to a demonstration all my life. Overall, almost one million Canadians participated in our small country. The challenge we have is how do we keep that drive going? Because people start going on. And one thing I have seen is that even though it's still going too slow, that solid momentum 
not the excitement of an event, but the solid momentum that's behind this to do something about climate change is growing and is growing fairly rapidly. The challenge we have is that we've got to speed that up even more. And I'll go back to what I said before. People are basically good. It doesn't matter if they're in Alberta or they're in Ontario or wherever they are. And they want to do what's right. But some people are confused of what is right because of the crap that's thrown down their throats. So you, and, you what, get Brett Wilson, who used to be on Dragon's Den, and just reading his stuff is ridiculous. But um, how come he has an audience? What, what is it he's saying that people want to hear? Well, again, he's, face he, it, he, he's so pro-oil and gas in Alberta, it's all he ever talks about. And yeah, but he says he that talks, people like us are, you know, we're idiots. We're idiots who are selling a hoax that none of this is real. Rex Murphy, you know, using old English gets to run around telling people that this is a bunch of nonsense and it's a bit too hot out here. Uh, you know, we have politicians who, when it's a, a cold day in Canada, go, well, I wouldn't mind some, uh, some global warming right about now. I mean, we've got an idiot conversation going, but I know people who think that they're right. Who just be, why? Because they they don't want to stop their way of life. If someone can tell me keep going, ignore them, it's all bullshit, then they'll keep going. We have these five or six high profile climate deniers in, in Canada. The uh, National Post has turned into a tabloid uh, outlet for many of these people, whether it's Conrad Black or Brett Wilson or Rex Murphy or Cork or, or oh. <laughs> I, 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 I would repeat what he called me once on Twitter, but it, it, it's very offensive. <laughs> Highly toxic individual, let me tell you. And yet he's had a pulpit for decades. I've just said, yeah, this is a nonsense argument. Continue to consume at the rapid rate at which you are going at the present moment. But we're not talking about the average Canadian here. We're talking about an elite group that's promulgating this, this promoting this climate denier propaganda on an ongoing basis. They never state any facts. They don't want to discuss science. They just want to make inflammatory comments. You know, this is going to cost you your job. Right. I'm here to protect Alberta and I'm going to save you from the... Okay, but isn't, the, isn't he right? Isn't it going to cost you your job? I mean, I'm working with some people right now who are trying to develop, and it's very underdeveloped, a just transition strategy. You can't leave people behind. You don't just say leave it in the ground and walk away from an oil worker whose whole family and life depends on what he's been doing, you know, day to day in Fort Mac or somewhere else, uh, or a coal worker in Estevan. You've got to have another plan. Is part of our problem here morally that we're not understanding that it's not enough to tell people that climate change is real. We have to help them find a bridge to walk over so they can get to the other side. I, I think, in hindsight, we can always identify mistakes that people have made. When going forward, it's very important that what's offered is a complete solution. It's not simply to say this is the solution to climate change. This is the solution that has to do with the areas that are most affected by this. And in Canada, it's going to be Alberta. So how are we going to make that better for Alberta? As you just said, the whole purpose of this is to leave no worker behind. You can't have 
saying, okay, we're going to put all these regulations in against greenhouse gas emissions and oil and gas usage and the rest of it, unless it's matched by what's going to happen to protect those workers and the people that live in the province most affected. This is not an Alberta problem. In fact, it's not even a Canadian problem. It's a world problem. But there's no such thing as a world government. So as Canada as a country is concerned, we have to resolve this. And there should be no province or worker or citizen of this country that's penalized because of what they're doing right now. I know, but we can't even get people to stop putting mushrooms and red peppers in black plastic. We can't even do that. I mean, you can't even tell people that they have to stop using plastic bags. It's pathetic. You know, uh, Nestle's buys enormous amounts of water for almost nothing in Guelph. And what does it tell people? It's, It's in the water business. It's not in the water business. It's in the plastic bottle business. I mean, you know, and then when it comes to an election, right now the new NAFTA is 250 pages long and not once is climate change mentioned. 250 pages, not one mention of climate change. You know, we're running out of time, and I'm just wondering, is this reasonable conversation about unreasonable people going to get us anywhere, or is this supposed to be something of an emergency? I mean, we have municipalities talking about a climate emergency all over this country. I don't see anything changing, you know, Andrew Scheer, the day after Greta Thunberg had led marches in Alberta and a million Canadians marched, as you just said, he literally went out in Vancouver and announced that they would build more highways for more cars because people have to get to work. So, you know, culturally, we're working with something. Is this like being in the desert with Moses? We got 40 years where we got to die off a generation of people enslaved to carbon so that we can cross the river and actually have a green world? Because we don't have 40 years. So I'm a little worried about it. Yeah, and in face it, there is no magical solution right now. The one thing when I talk about climate crisis to people, people want to know what should they do? It's a fair question. I think what people should do is a fairly simple one. First of all, you worry about what you're doing, not what the other guy's doing. It's too easy to say, oh, it's Jason Kenney's fault or it's Donald Trump's fault. Okay, that's not that they're not making it worse, but that doesn't help anybody. We don't control what those guys are doing. So you you worry about yourself first. You engage. Just like you and I are right now, we're engaging. Why do I do so much time on Twitter? Because I'm trying to engage to get people to change. And the more people that do that, the more people that are influenced by it. We have to act. You just mentioned the thing about water and plastics and a whole pile of things. That's an individual choice. Okay, I know but, okay but wait a minute. On the other hand, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but asking me to sort my garbage co- correctly when a system continues to pour contaminants and toxins and poisons into into landfill with no repercussion for the externalities of their business, that we pay for it. When we have a system that says that every individual Canadian, if you added up the oil and gas subsidies in this country, would out-of-pocket $2,000 per Canadian. If, if the systems themselves aren't going to change, then 
all we have to do is point at Al Gore taking a plane to get to a conference to say he's full of crap. That these things, because you can isolate people and, and demean their effort by saying that they're part of a, a playing field, the point is to change the playing field. The players want to change. Give them an easier way to change than continuing to, with this ridiculously consumptive society that we live in. I don't need 14 kinds of Cheerios. Really, I'm good. But here we are in a culture of inadequacy and marketplace frenzy. Look at Christmas. It's obscene how much is going. 40% of retail values go on in Christmas. It's nuts. And yet we are trapped in this delirium of inadequacy that keeps us constantly running back to get more because it's never enough. Warehousing and, and storage is one of the biggest businesses in the world. Just keeping more stuff that you can't keep in your house, which is already stuffed. So if, as long as we keep thinking like that, who cares if I sorted my plastic correctly or, or polluted one of my bins by putting the wrong thing in it and put plastic bread tags in there? Who cares? I mean, it's not going to be enough if I change. So people give up or they click on you and go, I agree with Gerald Cutney. I think he's, he's got it right. I'm going to click. And then they go back to their world. I'm being very pessimistic here. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but, but you really nailed it. All your everything you just described are what people do. Most of it. I realize there's some evil industries and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. Okay. And so, and it's not that you just do one silly little thing. Like I, like I put in an LED light bulb and so I've done my good deed for the year. Right. I think what's happening, and I really believe this is happening. People are try, thinking more and more of the total. People are thinking about their plastic. Use. People are thinking the three R's are the most simplest thing that's ever been invented, and they are so powerful. Reduce, reuse, recycle, in that order. And people didn't pay much attention to it. It was just a blue box thing, right? Everyone just put it in the blue box. I can tell you, and it just sort of happened with time, the amount of stuff I put in my blue box is less than half it was a few years ago. The amount of garbage I have in Ottawa, they pick up the garbage every two week, two weeks. I put about two thirds of a bag of garbage out in those two weeks. And I'm, we're deliberately trying to find ways of reducing it. But this is first world, this is first world tweaking where, you know, we can afford to do this. The the third and second worlds are nowhere near these kinds of levels and they're going to suffer the worst from climate change because they have the least infrastructure and mitigation technologies in place. So, we can do this, but I keep thinking, why isn't everybody stop pointing at each other and saying, you're trying to kill my job, you're trying to take my stuff away, you're trying to not clean up enough, or you're not trying enough. Why don't we stop that and look towards the corporate world that creates with very little consequence and maximizes profit? If, if you have five families that can control 30% of the wealth of a country or 50% of the wealth of a country in some cases. We're on the wrong track systemically. Capitalism may not be able to carry this water. Uh, And without a spiritual compass, without an ethical and moral world where we have an obligation to actually tend to this planet and everything on it in a loving way, then I don't see how we get out of this because we have become God and we're lousy at it. We're just raping things around us. So 
I can sort my garbage while they they build with the worst cement GHG emission technologies they have, the condo that's 43 stories tall right beside me. What's the difference? What, do, what am I doing? Well, why don't you turn around and tell that guy, you know what, you can't do that. You can't use that kind of concrete anymore. It's killing us. We don't do that. Well, the, the third thing I always tell people besides uh, engaging and, and, and acting is how you vote. We live in a democracy. And unfortunately, some of those election results turn out not the way I think a lot of people would like them. Yeah. To be polite. But that is the start. Don't get me wrong. I'm not arguing with you. I agree with you totally. But having great altruistic intentions, you know, they talk about road paved with, with good intentions. Actions speak that much more. You, you, let's say there's an industry you hate. It doesn't matter. With good reason, by the way. Let's say it, it, it's the, it, it's the uh, car industry. Okay? You don't buy that type of car anymore. So we or need to organize don't... that kind of boycotting mentality, you're saying? Well. Or do we need to vote for political that, that, parties? That's the next step. That's the next step. But why I get so frustrated is people comment about these things and they're not even taking taking this into their own lives the only thing don't get me wrong i understand that we have to do this on a much bigger scale the one thing i know i control is what i personally do so above all number one that's where i start and it doesn't have to be what someone else thinks is perfect it's what i believe believe that i have to change so i do my best to change that's what we have to get people like the way you talk is perfect, but there's people that don't talk that way. They're not worried about this sort of stuff. They go, they go to Tim Hortons and, and throw uh, 10 coffee cups a day. Yeah. But there's no consequence. So we, you can so, do whatever the hell you want, but a political party is not going to every political parties are, have worked with them highly adverse to impinging on what people believe is their God-given right. People believe it's their God-given right to travel at 130 kilometers an hour in an HOV lane. They think it's an express lane. And if you're with your family driving 100 kilometers an hour, get the hell out of my way. (laughs) So once you have, you don't give back. You keep. The more you have, the more you keep. These are parts of human nature that are leading to our own destruction. I mean, politically, can you think, is there a political party in Canada or are there political parties in Canada that you would say, you know what, if we were electing more of those and really giving them some power, we'd be getting out of this thing a lot faster? Yeah, and your point's well taken. And during the last election, I tried to participate on Twitter on on the political election in, in, in Canada. And I, I never told, even suggested what someone, who they should vote for. I did spend an awful long time on saying who they shouldn't vote for. That makes sense. And it's very politic of you considering you've written a book about the politics of all this. No, and, and, and that's why I go on about what I do. I, it drives me insane because Again, everything you're saying is true. The problem that I see with it, what are you going to do about it? And I, the one part I disagree with you, I think more and more people 
and I think it's by far the vast majority, think like you and I are discussing here today. They're not blind to this. The vocal groups, and in, in most things, it's usually one-third of the population. It doesn't matter where you are. One-third of the population will go off on these tangents. Yeah. The problem with this one-third is they're so friggin' loud, and they and they shout and they scream. It doesn't matter if it's on Twitter or, or it's at a at a uh, on a uh, newspaper opinion piece or wherever it is. They're loud, but they don't represent the majority of the people. I think we do, and all we have to do is start realizing this, and we can start taking control of the situation. So maybe we need another hashtag besides climate brawl, which is get loud. Well, I, I, I promote that in the, in the, what I call the friends of climate brawl, a brawl that people have to get out there. They have to shout, they have to shout loud. They have to shout louder still because that's what the other side does. And so far they have done it better than we have. They talk about the silent majority. That, that, that's true. The problem with the silent majority is they're an enabler of, of propaganda from fringe groups. They are actually an enabler and people don't realize it. By being silent, they're actually letting the other people succeed. James Speth is a um, environmentalist and has written about climate for 40 years, written some wonderful stuff. And at one point he said, you know, I used to think that this could all be solved by the science as a scientist, I believed that. And then I realized that that wasn't actually true, that human beings have devolved into greed and apathy, and that what is needed to solve this is both spiritual and cultural and must happen in that way. And I, I was affected by that because it was a scientist, and I have all the respect in the world for the, tr the truth of science in the case of climate. But it is so easy, as a communications expert, I can tell you how easy it is for me to take apart all the truth of that science and sow the seeds of doubt so that we can continue on doing what we're doing to destroy the planet. It happens every day. It's not, the problem is, it's too easy to do. I just had, I had somebody sitting in a chair here doing this podcast with me, and this was literally what he thought when I said, what do you think of climate change? He said, the sun is a, a furnace, a huge furnace, and its thermostat is broken. And it's, it's just the heat's going all over the place. That's what's going on here. I said, so the IPCC report, and he goes, what the hell is that? I said, the, well, it's, it's a climate report from the United Nations from the group of climate scientists. Well, who said that they're the experts? So we've really devolved. I mean, we are really in a place where knowledge is looked down upon. It's looked upon with suspicion. And I don't know if those people who believe that, so that 30% and more, who actually have the money and the control in this conversation, can be swayed by numbers and facts. They might get swayed in their churches and and, and pews, I doubt that too. Really what they're saying is, let's not stop this rodeo. This is, this is one we're enjoying. This is a way of life we fought for. Uh, and it's usually one that involves white privilege. So there's so many things arrayed against it. My last question for you is, optimist, pessimist, what do you think is going to be happening? 
with climate change, you have to be an optimist. If you're a pessimist, we're finished. And so, yes, and I, and besides being a little bit corny about being an optimist, I actually believe that the tide is changing. But I agree that it's not changing at a fast enough speed. But I have no doubt that the tide is turning and we just have to crank it up to make things happen. What's the name of your latest book? Uh, it's, it's a working title at this stage. I just call it Climate Brawl. Mm. My favorite hashtag, and it's it's basically a, a, a history of the uh, politics of climate change from the very beginning in the fossil fuel industry, and what we've been talking about here today, how it became so ingrained into national economies and the b- belief in national prosperity. Oh, I love it. When are you going to get done? I'm very slow at these things. I'm hoping to have it completed by the end of the year, but we'll have to see. <laughs> Gerald, hurry up. Get somebody else to type it if that's the case. If you're going to make trouble like this, get it done. Like you just said, okay. we don't have time, Gerald. We don't have time. <laughs> now, you have you have two other books, right? You have one on sulfur? Yeah, I did that one uh, quite a few years ago, and I, I did one on, on what was called Carbon Politics and the Failure of the Kyoto Protocol. Yes. That was m- more in the IPCC, and I was a little bit critical of the IPCC, even though I have a lot of respect for them. Uh, but it was really an overview of how that organization works. And at that time, I talked about climate denial and how it was attacking uh, scientific integrity and things like that. So if people want to find you, just hashtag Climate Brawl or at Gerald Cutney, and you have a Facebook page too, I assume. Yeah, I don't use Facebook very much. I'm I'm a Twitter guy. I, 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 I have spent too much time on there. I can't go on Facebook as well. So <laughs> Gee, I wonder why not. <laughs> My wife is already a, a Twitter widow. She it can't get worse than already. Put that thing down. Isn't that what she says about every 15 yeah. minutes? I'm trying exactly. to talk to you. We're supposed to leave. Put that thing down. Uh, well, I'm happy you haven't put that thing down. And uh, I hope that book comes out sooner than later. And I really thank you for your time. The name of your company is Sixth Element Sustainable Management, if people want to get in touch with you for that kind of work. And uh, Gerald Cutney, I truly appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Oh, Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this, Ralph. And thank you to your audience as well. Take care. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, and I want to thank Gerald Cutney for having that conversation with me. If you have any thoughts on what we were talking about, please feel free. Uh, I'm Ralph Benmergi. This is Not That Kind of Rabbi, my podcast. And you can get in touch with us on my Facebook page for Not That Kind of Rabbi or at Ralph Benmergi on Twitter. Uh, and I think I'll uh, start hashtagging climate brawl a little more often. You take care of each other. We'll see you soon.
This podcast has been produced by TMDS and accelerated by Rome Phone. Rome Phone brings you the most reliable virtual phone service to run your business and protect your home number from unwanted calls. Visit romephone.ca to get started.